The following resources from Two Journeys. Two Journeys exists to help Christians make progress in the two journeys of the Christian life, the internal journey of sanctification and the external journey of gospel advancement. We do this by exporting biblical teaching for the good of Christ's church and for the glory of God. Please visit twojourneys.org for more resources. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for the time we have to study together. We thank you for the grace, the mercy that we have in Christ. Father, I pray, I think about the three great advantages to understanding predestination election. I pray that you'd work those in this church. I pray that you'd work them in each individual heart here. That we'd have a greater sense of the glory of God, just the, the, the glory of God in our salvation. How our salvation greatly glorifies God through Jesus Christ. And secondly, how humbled we should be that we have been saved. Uh, that we have nothing to commend ourselves, but we've been saved simply by your grace through the work of Christ. We should be greatly and deeply humbled by this and forsake forever any arrogant boasting or pride, sinful pride against you. And and thirdly, that we would know the security we have in Christ, the absolute security uh, that you have set your love on us before the foundation of the world, that you took hold of us in Christ for a purpose, that we should be holy and blameless in your sight, and that you will not stop working in us and around us and in all of the elect from every nation until we are all all perfectly one in Christ so that we have absolute security and boldness and confidence and we can fight sin with great confidence and we can look at the church with great confidence and know that you'll finish your work here too and uh, that we can look at a sinful world with confidence and know that you are at work there as well. And we can do evangelism and missions with great confidence knowing that you will uh, save the elect without fail. And so I pray that these three things would be worked in us tonight as a result of this teaching. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, friends, uh, this is our second week of considering uh, the doctrine of predestination as taught by John Calvin, election, predestination. Um, and just want to give you by, uh, just a brief uh, review of what we covered last time. I already said in my prayer these three benefits that come. Uh, one of the things we discussed last time was how Calvin argued against the hesitance that people have, the reticence that people have to discuss this. You just don't talk about it. You don't bring it up. It's divisive. It's hard to understand. It seems to paint God in a negative light. I want to stay away from this topic. It's not, it's not worth it. Uh, and he argues vigorously against this, um, basically by the, fact, the simple fact that God has chosen to reveal this to us. And so to hold back from talking about it is really to uh, question God's wisdom in giving us certain passages of Scripture that teach these things. Um, and so he argues against that. On the other hand, however, he's very balanced and says there are those that go too far in their contemplations here and they speculate beyond what Scripture is given. They try to put some things together doctrinally or, or using their own imaginations, try to fill in the blanks that God hasn't given us. And so there has to be balance as we consider these doctrines. Uh, don't avoid talking about it. Let's talk about the elect. It's a biblical term. Let's talk about predestination. It's a biblical concept. Let's understand it. Let's embrace it. Let's say, you know, we're sending the, uh, our missionaries out to find the, the elect, uh, that God would raise up elect from every nation and, and that they would be saved as a result of hearing the gospel. So let's send them off with confidence, friends. You know, let's send them off to Central Asia or to East Asia, knowing that they're going to find some people and that God's going to use them to build. Let's, that's what we should be. I and mean, pray toward that end. Uh, it's very biblical. Read about it in 2 Timothy, uh, where Paul says, I endure everything for the sake of the elect. Uh, but on the other hand, I don't think it's necessary for us 
to go beyond what scriptures, uh, Scripture says about this. So let's, uh, let's do that. Now, as I look at our church and I look at the church in general, uh, not every single local church or every single person, but I think in general, people talk about this less than they should. It's generally avoided. So we need more teaching on this. We need more talking about this, not less. I don't think we've gone too far. We're not going into speculation at this point point. all that. So that's why we're doing this tonight. Uh, we also talked about what predestination is, uh, how it's uh, understood, uh, a definition of it. And Calvin gives it for us here on page uh, two. We call predestination God's eternal decree by which he compacted with himself what he willed to become of each man. For all are not created in equal condition. Rather, eternal life is foreordained for some, eternal damnation for others. And therefore, as any man has been created to one or the other of these ends, we speak of him as predestined to life or to death. So the key concept here is that this is something God does within himself without consulting the creature. He's not looking at the creature by that. We mean a created thing. He's not asking counsel of a created thing. What should I do about this? I mean, he actually kind of ridicules that idea in the book of Job. Where were you when I, you know, were you there when I was doing all this? And so the same idea with predestination. God isn't conferring with us. He's not seeking counsel from us. You know, uh, who has been God's counselor that God should, should seek wisdom from him? It says there in Romans 11. God isn't asking our advice. It's laughable. I think it's absolutely wonderful that we should ask God's advice, or even better, since he's a king, ask what his commands are concerning us, but uh, that he would confer with us and try to find out what to do uh, just cannot be. And so God isn't conferring with us, not asking insight, and as we're going to get into a little more tonight, he's not searching us to see things that are going to trigger things in him. Everything's within God. He's compacting within himself concerning us. That's what it is. And then he is you know, uh, working in us according to the counsels of his will. So that's, those are the things we talked about. We discussed national election. It's important for us to understand that God has a purpose for nations and especially he had a purpose for the Jews. They were his chosen people as we talk about frequently. God chose the Jews nationally and there are many verses uh, that talk about that. Now what we want to do is get more specifically into the concept of individual election. So let's go on to page three. Second stage, election and reprobation of individual Israelites. Now here we're talking about Jews within the Jewish nation who are themselves either elect or reprobate. They are elect for eternal life, reprobate for damnation. Calvin writes this, We must now add a second, more limited degree of election or one in which God's more special grace was evident. That is, when from the same race of Abraham God rejected some but showed that he had kept others among his sons by cherishing them in the church. Ishmael had at first obtained equal rank with his brother Isaac, for in him the spiritual covenant had been equally sealed by the sign of circumcision. Ishmael is cut off. Then Esau, afterward a countless multitude, and well nigh all Israel. In Isaac the seed was called, the same calling continued in Jacob. Now, I think we obviously know that Calvin is tracing out or following the arguments of Romans 9. And we're going we're to talk about that, but that's where he's getting. He's saying, look, you know, Abraham had two sons. He had Isaac, he had Ishmael and Isaac. One of them a, a child of the promise, the other one not. Both of them physically descended from Abraham. And uh, moving on from that, if, if you say, oh, come on now, nobody's ever claiming anything for Ishmael. We all knew he was the son of a slave woman. That whole thing shouldn't have even happened. I mean, come on. 
It was a bad idea to be with Hagar anyway. That's not, that's got nothing to do with us Jews. They might say, okay, well, how about, how about the twins, you know, inside, inside uh, Rebecca's womb? And so Paul goes into that whole case concerning um, Jacob and Esau. And so the point that Paul makes there in Romans 9 is the point that Calvin's picking up here. God's lavishing of his grace is free. It's unconstrained by created beings, by the creature. Calvin says this, but I had good reason to say that here we must note of, note two degrees. For in the election of a whole nation, God has already shown that in his mere generosity, he has not been bound by any laws, but is free. So that equal apportionment of grace is not to be required of him. The very inequality of his grace proves that it's free. In other words, God's not operating under any laws in this area. He doesn't, he doesn't need to be constrained by something outside of him. He doesn't have to obey the law on this. And so everything's coming from within God, and so therefore this is what we call free grace. By that, free means it's, there's no string attached to the creature. He's not looking at something in the created being. It's coming from inside him. It's just totally free within him, and he can give it or not. And that's what, uh, what the Scripture is teaching here. Malachi, the prophet, uses this freedom of God's grace to rebuke Israel for basing gratitude for their election. In other words, we should be grateful. There should be thankfulness going to God for this. So Malachi says this, I have loved you, says the Lord, but you ask, how have you loved us? Was not Esau Jacob's brother? The Lord says, yet I have loved Jacob, but Esau I have hated, and I have turned his mountains into a wasteland and left his inheritance to the desert jackals. So what is the prophet Malachi saying there? saying, you should have been thankful to me. Look what I did to Esau. That's what the prophet Malachi is saying. You should be thankful because of the grace that I've shown to you. So the election of individuals uh, is an actual election. God actually chooses individuals. And it's the fullest explanation of God's purpose and grace. In other words, what we're going to see here is that God chose Israel so that ultimately he could choose these individuals. That's really what he's working on. That's what Calvin's saying here. Although it is now sufficiently clear that God by his secret plan freely chooses whom he pleases, rejecting others, still his free election has been only half explained until we come to individual persons to whom God not only offers uh, salvation, but uh, so assigns it that the certainty of its effect is not in suspense or doubt. So in other words, he is, he is getting at individuals ultimately. That's what he's, he's looking at. He's not seeing whole nations as a faceless mass of humanity and just tons of people and all that. He is able, through his infinite wisdom, through his infinite power, his omniscience, to see individuals and dispose of their condition. That's what he's saying. And so it's go, we're going toward individuals. That's what we're heading toward. What then is the relationship between nations and individuals in election? God's unchangeable plan by which he predestined for himself those whom he willed was, in fact, intrinsically effectual unto salvation for these spiritual offspring alone. But I advise my readers not to take a prejudiced position, said Calvin, on either side until when the passages of Scripture have been adduced, it shall be clear what opinion ought to be held. Now, what he said earlier, and we covered this last time, you're only going to get predestination from, from Scripture. So even here he's saying, I'm not going to get ahead of, our, ahead of myself. Let's look at the text. Let's look at the passages and let's understand it from that. Only when we start to look at Scripture, individual Scriptures, will we be able to see how this individual election fits within the subset of the, of the, uh, the nation of Israel as a whole. And so he gives this summary survey of the doctrine of election. As scripture then clearly shows, we say that God once established by his eternal and unchangeable plan, those whom he long before determined once for all to receive into salvation and those whom on the other hand, he would devote to destruction. We assert that with respect to the elect, this plan was founded upon his freely given mercy. 
without regard to human worth, but by his just and irreprehensible but incomprehensible judgment, he has barred the door of life to those whom he has given over to damnation. Now, among the elect, we regard the call as a testimony of election. Uh, Then we hold justification, another sign of its manifestation, until they come into the glory in which the fulfillment of that election lies. But as the Lord seals his elect by call and justification, so by shutting off the reprobate from knowledge of his name or from the sanctification of his spirit, he, as it were, reveals by these marks what sort of judgment awaits them. It's a lot of words. Let me just try to explain what he's getting at. You can tell election by how it all turns out. That's what he's getting at. You know someone's elect when they hear the gospel, first and foremost, and then respond favorably with faith, and then through sanctification grow in godliness and die and go to heaven. That's, that's how you can tell election. On the other hand, you can tell reprobation is either they never hear the gospel at all and die in that condition, or they hear and they don't repent with faith and they don't continue in sanctification and grow. That's how you can tell how reprobation works. That's what he's saying. And he's saying you trace all of that back, the different outcomes, the Jacobs and the Esau's, you trace all of that back to the plan of God. That's what he's getting at. That is the doctrine of election, the doctrine of, of predestination. And what he says, if you look at, at these words, very, very uh, powerful, the plan that he had to do all this was founded uh, on his freely given mercy on the one hand without regard to human worth. So the elect, they're just shown mercy. We get mercy, friends. The elect get mercy. That's what you get. The reprobate, they get justice. We get justice too because justice is displayed at the cross. It's not unjust that we're saved. That's Romans 3. But the bottom line is the elect get mercy, the others get justice, what they truly deserve. Now, what he says then, but by his just, so it's justice, and irreprehensible, but incomprehensible judgment. Now, what he's saying, irreprehensible means you can't question him about it. You can't say, why have you done this? This is wrong. You can't stand over God and tell him what you're you're doing here with reprobation is wrong. It's evil. And you're saying, what do you mean? We can do, we do that all the time. Okay? Well, we do it all the time. Well, the implication here is you ought not to. And it's not going to stick in the end. God cannot be mocked and God cannot be judged. And you'll find that out on Judgment Day if you seek to try to do it. You'll just see that God's still on his throne. His ways are just and righteous and you don't even know almost what justice and righteousness is if you're questioning God on Judgment Day. That's the point. It can't, you can't question him. In effect, you get that again in Romans 9. Who are you, O man, to talk back to God? Shall what is form say to him who formed it? Why did you make me like this? We don't have any right to stand over God and question him on this. What are our justice and righteousness credentials? How are they? Are your credentials in order? You doing well on justice and righteousness or mercy or any of these attributes? Look, these are not strengths of ours, friends. (laughs) And so therefore, for us to come and impugn God is really almost laughable. But that's what we do. People just don't like the doctrine. They don't, and so they question it. They question that, you know, that this could even happen. And he says, incomprehensible judgment. What does that mean to you? What does that word incomprehensible mean? Say, I don't know. (laughs) I'm just kidding. (laughs) Can't be understood. We don't, we don't know. I don't know. Yeah, that's it. That's just so humorous. Anyway, I just like inside jokes like this. But bottom line is, I don't know what you're really doing. I don't completely get it. And this is what we talked about last time, that beautiful phrase of knowledgeable ignorance. Be knowledgeable enough to know that you're ignorant, that you're just born yesterday and know nothing. 
and that we just don't have the right to stand before God and say, you know, this whole thing is wrong. Question God. You know, his judgments are incomprehensible because his ways, ways just soar so high above ours. His thoughts so far above our thoughts. And so for me, ultimately, I assert things that are clearly taught in the Bible that I personally can't reconcile. I assert them very plainly and boldly and say them because I stand on the scriptures. These things are taught, as we mentioned last time, concerning Judas. It would have been better for Judas if he had not been born. How do I know that it would have been better for Judas if he had never been born? Because Jesus said it. He said it would have been better for Judas if he had never been born. But he was born. Was that an accident? How could it be? No accidents here. Where did Judas get his body from? God gave it to him. He knit it together in his mother's womb. I know that because Psalm 139 tells me that. In other verses too, there are no physical bodies except those that were knit together by God. Why did he do it? For his own glory? I don't know how, what answer to give. He chose to create Judas though it wasn't better for Judas. And you look at that and it's like, well, it just kind of blows my circuits. I don't know how to figure that all out. I don't know what's going on. How can a loving God do all that? Look, let your circuits be blown. I think it's good for our circuits to be blown. But still assert what the scripture says. Say, you know, this is true. And just say, I just don't know how to put it all together. But I'm not going to shrink back from what the text is saying. I'm going to say it. I'm going to assert it. And I'll do my best to harmonize it with other texts and to come up with a system of theology as best I can, knowing it's a step removed from the text. It's a step lower than the text. We're not living and dying by the system. But we need to systematize it as best we can. Try to come up with a harmonization as best we can. We do it anyway. We're going to do it. So you try. But just know that the systematization, the harmonization, is not going to be perfect. Just do the best you can with it. Put it all together as best you can. It seems to me that God had the elect in mind when he crafted Judas. See what I'm getting at? He crafted Judas for our benefit, not for Judas's benefit. That's all I'm getting. That's, that's, I think, what Romans 9 says. It's better for the vessels of mercy that there are vessels of wrath. It's not better for the vessels of wrath. Does that make sense? But it's better for us. And, you know, again, you're like, well, I just, the God I love would love everybody equally. Well, listen, I, maybe that the God you love isn't the God of the Bible. And that's where you have to just be corrected and changed and challenged by the text. And this doctrine does that. That's why I love it. I think it's stri- it's, it convicts us and it humbles us. All right? Any other thoughts on this? All right? Yes, Rick. I, just, uh, well, I always revert to, uh, I want to worship a God that I can't figure out. Right. You know, I mean, we're always trying to run to uh, a logical explanation. I think there's an awe. Yeah. Amen. Amen. You know, and the same thing comes with any apologetics. You know, you're looking at things. I don't believe that Christianity is, is, is irrational. I think it's super rational. It goes beyond our... It's very reasonable as far as reason goes. But it just then takes off and goes like into warp drive beyond you. You know what I'm saying? It's just, just so much beyond what we can reason out. And we just need to be okay with that. And this doctrine does that probably better than any doctrine I know in the Bible. So it just has that power to challenge us. All right, well, let's, let's look at this. And this should be, I hope, interesting to you on page four, confirmation of this doctrine from scriptural testimonies. It's like, all right, come on, we've just been doing theology. Let's look at the Bible. Let's look at scripture, please. Well, Calvin's more eager than us. All right, let's get right to it. All right, first of all, election is not from foreknowledge of merit, but is of God's sovereign purpose, okay? Election versus foreknowledge of merits. Here you have that basic concept. 
that God in His infinite, mysterious foreknowledge and omniscience just knows everybody ahead of time, knows what they're going to do, knows what their attributes and their abilities are and their faith and their repentance or not. And then based on what they will do before they're created, God then elects some and not others. Okay? So that amazingly makes God, and this is really quite astonishing, it makes God in a reactive state within his own mind before any of us were born. God is reacting to beings that don't exist yet. That's, I mean, that's what's going on. God's like, oh, or, they, you know, there's, hey, there's another believer. I found another one. And, and all within his own mind, he's seeking and saving those that will someday have faith. Who knows where that faith comes from? It comes from the creature, right? That's how it works. Calvin's just going to sweep that kind of thing away. So it's not based on uh, foreknowledge of merits. Generally, the people who argue like this consider that God distinguishes among men according as he foresees what the merits of each will be. Therefore, he adopts as sons those whom he foreknows will not be unworthy of his grace and he appoints to the damnation of death those whose dispositions he discerns will be inclined to evil intentions and ungodliness. By the way, why do people like this? approach why is this appealing to some people rick why why do some people like this this is this is i like myself i like to be in control i like to command my own destiny okay i'm the master of my fate i'm the captain of my soul and god's checking in with me seeing well what's it going to be right and so that's people like to make their own decisions and you know even though they can't quite figure it out there's going to be mysteries everybody acknowledges there's going to be mysteries somewhere how god can foreknow those things who knows but he does, and, and so he's still coming to me, in effect, before the creation of the world, asking me what I want to do. <laughs> and uh, that's, that's the whole approach. It, it still makes man's decision the center uh, of everything. That's why it's appealing. Calvin asserts biblical truth to contradict this. When Paul teaches that we were chosen in Christ before the creation of the world, Ephesians 1, 4a, he takes away all consideration of real worth on our part. For it is just as if he had said, since among all the offspring of Adam... The heavenly father found nothing worthy of his election. He turned his eyes upon his anointed to choose from that body as members those whom he was to take into the fellowship of life. Let this reasoning then prevail among believers. We were adopted in Christ into the eternal inheritance because in ourselves we were not capable of such great excellence. So here he's making a distinction between the first Adam and the second Adam. And he's saying the first Adam represents natural humanity, just naturally all of us. He doesn't find anything in Adam, nothing worthy of salvation. So he looks instead to the second Adam, he looks instead to Christ, and he chooses us in him, in Christ. So he's really just zeroing in on Ephesians 1.4. In him we were chosen before the creation of the world. That's what he says. All right. And again, he says, uh, this Paul also notes in another passage when he urges the Colossians to give thanks because God has made them fit to share the inheritance of the saints, Colossians 1.12. If to make us fit to receive the glory of the life to come, election precedes this grace of God, what will God find in us now to move, move him to choose us? In other words, he makes us fit for salvation. The fitness then comes from God. And if the fitness is coming from God, then, all right, the fitness isn't there yet, right? What then is he going to be choosing? <laughs> There's no fitness I'm choosing unfitness. Well, I actually think that's what he does choose. He chooses unfitness so that every mouth will be silenced. And then he tells you, you were unfit. (laughs) And then I made you fit for the gospel. 
That's what Colossians 1.12 is doing. Again, what is he doing? He's meditating on Scripture here. Yeah. I'm sorry? Go ahead. So you haven't figured out. Okay. Well, praise God. I'm encouraged. I'm encouraged. That's, that's good. I, I would hate to be going in the wrong direction. All right. And then Paul says in uh, election before uh, creation, not associated with foreknowledge of merit, Ephesians 1, 3 through 6. Can somebody read this uh, bottom of page 4 and on to page 5? Okay, Calvin writes this, that the proof may be more complete is worthwhile to note the individual parts of this passage, Ephesians 1, 4, and 5, which, coupled together, leave no doubt. Since he calls them elect, it cannot be doubted that he is speaking to believers, as he also soon declares. Therefore, those who misinterpret the word elect as confined to the age when the gospel was proclaimed uh, disfigure it with base fabrication. It's just people are always trying to find new ways to look at these verses. It's amazing but they keep working on it. All right. By saying that they were elect before the creation of the world, Ephesians 1, 4, he takes away all regard for worth. For what basis for distinction is there among those who did not yet exist and who were subsequently to be equals in Adam? Now, if they are elect in Christ, it follows that not only is each man elected without respect to his own person, but also certain ones are separated from others since we see that not all are members of Christ. Besides the fact that they were elect to be holy or elected to be holy, plainly refutes the error that derives election from foreknowledge, since Paul declares all virtue appearing in man is the result of election. Let me just pause and tell you what he's saying. We were chosen to be holy and blameless in his sight. And so therefore, the holiness and being blameless in his sight is a re- result of the election, not the cause of it. If you're saying, well, you know, God's choosing something else other than holiness or blame. I mean, look, we've, we've dispensed with fitness, you know, holiness and blamelessness are out. What then was it that God saw? We don't have any of these good words. They're all taken away from us naturally and then given to us in Christ by grace, you see. And so he's not finding anything in us. No merit at all. That's what he's saying. We were chosen to be holy. And so it comes from the election. Now, if a higher cause be sought, Paul answers that God has predestined it so and that this is according to the good pleasure of his will. Ephesians 1.5. By these words, he does away with all means of their election that men imagine in themselves. For all benefits that God bestows for the spiritual life, as Paul teaches, flow from one source, namely, that God has chosen whom he willed and that and before their birth, has laid up for them individually the grace that he will to grant them. In other words, he did it, just he's zeroing on that phrase, for the pleasure of his will. He did it because of himself. It's within himself. These phrases aren't coming from Calvin and the Institutes. That God compacted within himself is coming right here out of Ephesians 1. It's for his own pleasure. That's where the plan comes from, within himself, and not from any external source. Okay? And so, therefore, a heading is reasonable at this point. We are elected to be holy, not because we were already holy. To say that God chooses us because he saw that we would be holy inverts Paul's order. Paul ascribes our eventual holiness to the election and work of God in Christ. For when it is said that believers were chosen that they might be holy, at the same time, uh, he suggested that the holiness 
that was to be in them originated from election. So uh, basically here, and you can see how sanctification fits into all this, all right? We were chosen to be holy. Therefore, we're told in other places, be holy, right? Because that's where you're heading. Be holy because I am holy is one of it, but also be holy because I chose you to be holy. You're heading toward being holy. And this makes perfect sense. This is the stamp of your election, that you should have foretastes of holiness now by putting sin to death by the power of the Spirit, by, by coming out and being separate from the world, by not loving the world or anything in the world, by walking in a holy manner uh, worthy of the calling that we have received. These things give us senses of our election because it's to this that we were elected, that we would be holy and blameless in this sight. That's what he's getting at. But the point is, not because we already were. Not at all. That's what he's getting at. Okay? Yeah, Jonathan, go ahead. I don't, yeah. I don't think that, that Calvin is thinking about baptism here because he baptized infants as well. But the Catholic Church would be different than the Reformed infant baptism uh, in that they, the Catholic Church believes in baptismal regeneration. It is by the water baptism that you are born again. It's by the ordinance or the, the sacrament, really, of infant baptism that the infant is rescued from original sin in Adam. And if that infant dies, uh, they, will, uh, uh, they will not go to hell immediately because of Adam's sin, because of original sin. That's what they teach. So I don't think that's really what's in his mind here. Yes, brother. You know, foreknowledge really doesn't take away the problem of uh, the person who wants to control his life. Because if God knows what I'm going to decide tomorrow, then it doesn't matter what I decide today. The script is already set, and I'm still going to arrive at that place, and, and what's going to happen is what's going to happen. You know, it's so true what you said. And I think, I think you know, this, uh, basically Edwards does the same thing with freedom of the will. It's basically, um, you know, the will begets the will. And you just keep tra- tracing it back and it ends up to absurdity. If, you, if it's hanging in nothing, it's like a chain hanging in space. And so uh, in the end, that kind of view of free, of free will just doesn't make any sense. And in the same way, this idea of foreknowledge. Um, people who want to say, hey, I'm totally free, I can do whatever I want. Um, if they're still going to click into the biblical doctrine of foreknowledge in a faulty way, they still can't do whatever they want because God knew already what they're doing. Very good point. Very good point. Also, Ephesians 1 ascribes God's ultimate motive as this, to the praise of His glorious grace. So there can't be anything in us if everything's going back to God and to His, to his grace. By the way, um, if you're saying, all right, well, God's not looking for fitness. He's not looking for merit. He's not looking for holiness. He's just looking for faith. He's just looking for faith. So I'm stepping off of institutes now and I'm just going to Ephesians 2. The answer to that is, yeah, but that's a gift of God too. Faith is a gift of God. And so there's just nowhere to hide. I mean, this thing is just thoroughly dealt with by the Apostle Paul. Just set Calvin aside and let's just do Paul for a minute. I mean, in, in the end, you know, basically, if you say God's looking for faith, well, he's the one that gives it. And Calvin's going to get to this. He's going to talk about the graces that save us, repentance and faith. And they're coming as a gift from God too. They're part of the package. And so that's it. Yeah, go ahead. Oh, yeah. I absolutely do. I think, you know, the big, the big kind of 
thing in the room that nobody wants to talk about is eternity in hell. That's just so horrible and so awful and so terrifying and all that. And God is so good and loving and all that. Let's see if we can just rescue God from the issue of hell. And, and let's just say, all right, we'll, we'll take care of hell for you, God. And, and we'll do that. It's like, no, God is doing hell. God made it. He created it for the devil and his angels. And then he is commanding the goats who had a covenant with the devil and his angels and shared with the devil and his angels in rebellion against Almighty God to go to the same outcome. It's not something God's embarrassed about. It's something he did. So it's, it's wrong-headed to begin with. It really is strange. God doesn't need to be protected from hell concerning that. you know. And in the end, it's like, well, it's just their fault. It wasn't God's fault. Well, yeah. So, yeah, I think that's exactly what's happening here. Yeah, go ahead. That's a very good point, Linda. I, I think I think as I look at this, and, and again, it's Edwards that's helped me on this more than anyone else. We were made by God to choose things, okay? The chooser is broken, <laughs> okay? So God heals the chooser so that we choose him. We were made, the chooser, the chooser mechanism in our heart was made for God. Sin messed all that up, totally messed it up, like messed up equipment. God came in and healed and fixed us, and now we choose Christ. That's what it is. Other than that, yeah, we're making choices, but it's just bizarre the choices we make. And isn't it? I mean, you're witnessing neighbors, family members. You're like, yeah. it's bizarre that what you're doing. It's just strange. We were talking about this recently, how Christians and non-Christians agree on one topic. We each think the other's crazy. Just crazy. You know, our decisions, our, the course of our life just looks nuts to them. And especially the more faithful, radically faithful we are to, to the gospel and to the claims of Christ, the weirder we're going to look to the world. I mean, you look at John the Baptist in Hebrews 11, men of whom the world was not worthy. They're out in caves and mountains and holes in the ground and all that. Just cannot make sense. That life makes no sense to me at all. Why would you do that? You know, or then the missionaries like Borden of Yale and all the CT stud that turn away from wealth and, and you know, everything the world would want and say, I'm going on the mission field to go die for Jesus. It's like, makes no sense. Conversely, we think they are insane. I mean, how could you possibly turn your back on Christ, turn your back on heaven, full forgiveness, free God? I mean, how, it just makes no sense to me. Haven't you felt that? You're witnessing and it's like, you just, don't you get it? Don't you see just how wonderful Jesus is and how free the gospel and, and all you have to do is believe and you go to heaven and doesn't it look good to you? No, looks like tyranny to me. You know, and it's like, oh, and it's just, we just, yeah, good point. Good point. All right, now let's dig in uh, here a little more to Romans 9. All right. You know, frankly, friends, in the end, you know, you want to just go to the heart of the matter. I mean, Ephesians 1 is strong. Romans 9 is the clearest exposition of all this. And, and I just have never seen a good, maybe, maybe from, from the outset, there can't be a good Arminian ex- exposition of, of, of Romans 9. I, I don't know. I mean, I, I read what Wesley wrote on it. I did my best. I, I tried, tried to look at it, and it's just, no. I mean, the only, you go phrase by phrase, verse by verse, understand what Paul says, you're going to end up with what Calvin's writing about. Because that's about all that Calvin's doing here. He's just explaining, you know, Isaac and Ishmael, Jacob and Esau, statements made in Romans 9. That's really what's going on here. 
All right, so Calvin begins with Romans 9 and unfolds his argument from that passage. Romans 9, 6 is probably one of the key concepts in understanding what, what Paul's getting at. It is not as though God's word had failed. Stop right there. This is, this is what the whole thing's about. Why? Well, you know the end of Romans 8? You know, Romans 8 is just awesome. Romans 8 teaches, you know, I'm convinced that neither height nor depth, nor angels nor demons, nor present nor future, you know, height nor depth or anything else in all creation can separate us from the love of God that's in Christ Jesus our Lord. Right? Sovereignty, power, God has chosen you. Predestination was already mentioned in Romans 8. Everything, all of that sovereignty of God, God is not going to lose you. You're going to heaven. Rejoice. Yeah, but what about the Jews? What about the Jews? So he, Paul, argues against his own position after just the the hosannas and the praise of Romans 8 and this absolute certainty of Romans 8, he brings up the Jews. I speak the truth in Christ. I'm not lying. My conscience confirms it in the Holy Spirit. I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish. For I could wish that I myself were cursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my own people. So he's talking about the Jews, his countrymen, right? And so he gets into that, and the first thing he wants to tell us is this key concept. It is not as though God's word has failed. For not all who are descended from Israel are Israel. All right, so what is he trying to protect here? What is Paul's motive in all this? He's trying to protect something. Yeah, the concept that God has failed. Why does he, why is he very zealous that the church, because you're writing in the Romans now, that the church would not think perhaps that God's word has failed concerning the Jews? Why is that really important that the church not think that? Yeah, he basically undoes all of the great certainty we just had in Romans 8. And we're uncertain. We're, we're you know, not, not sure how it's all going to come out. We Clearly, in many passages, God wants us to be certain. He wants us to be sure. He wants us fully confident. He wants us assured. And so this worm comes in from Satan. Yeah, what about the Jews? You know, you Gentile church, you're really God's second wife, basically. He couldn't do it with, you know, he, he's trying again. Second marriages tend to fail. First one failed. God wasn't able to save the Jews. Satan whispering, you know, it's the very thing that, you know, in effect, Moses prays back to God. You know something, if you destroy all the Jews and you make of me a great nation, you know what the Egyptians are going to say? You weren't able to bring the Jews in the promised land. That's what they're going to say. So in effect, God now says it in reference to himself. I didn't fail to bring the Jews into the promised land. I didn't fail because I didn't intend to do it. That's in effect what he's saying here. Not all who are descended from Israel are Israel. I know those whom I've chosen. I know what I'm doing. Everything's on schedule. That's what he's getting at. I didn't ever intend to save the whole Jewish nation. That's not what the national election was for. The national election was for something else, not necessarily to bring them all to heaven. I mean, my goodness, the whole nation that passed through the Red Sea, they didn't even all make it into the physical promised land. Most of them didn't. Just the little kids did, remember? So, I mean, right away we know that this must be true, even in the physical analogy side. They didn't even make it to the physical promised land. So how much less did they make it into the spiritual promised land is the point here. God's word didn't fail. God didn't ever promise to bring them all to heaven. Can you find a promise where he says, I'm going to take all of your physical offspring to heaven with me? He never says it. He never says it. What we do get is Abraham believed Lord and it was credited him as righteousness. Now that's what we get. The believers among his, those are the ones that get saved. And he's going to say it's all based on election. So, not all who are descended from Israel are Israel. What does that mean? A set within a group, right? It's a circle within a circle, subset. This is a subset of the Jews. 
some of them are both nationally elected and individually personally elected. They are physically descended from Abraham, they're physical Jews, and they are also chosen to go to heaven. That's what he's getting at. Calvin writes this, If the will of God, the cause of which neither appears, ought to be sought outside of himself, distinguishes some from others, so that not all the sons of Israel are true Israelites, it is vain to pretend that every man's condition begins in, in himself. So what he's doing is here, he's, he's saying, okay, this is the case with the Jews. He doesn't just extends it out to the whole human race. The whole human race. The cause of whether you are truly an Israelite or not was never in them anyway. It was always in God. And so the case is elect and non-elect. That's what he's getting at. So let's get to the case of Jacob and Esau. Romans 9, 10 through 13, not only that, but Rebecca's, Rebecca's children had one and the same father. So the case of Isaac and Ishmael, we're saying having Abraham as your genetic father doesn't get you to heaven. That's what he's saying, okay? So Abraham is our father. They say, hey, Abraham's, didn't, didn't the Jews say that in John 8? We're, hey, we're children of Abraham. In effect, Paul's saying, yeah, that's not going to save you though. You come and tell me you're a child of Abraham. John the Baptist dealt with that. Do not begin to say we're children of Abraham. God can raise up out of these stones children for Abraham. Do not claim that as your ticket of passage. It will not get you there. That's what Paul's doing in Romans 9. Does that make sense? Genetic connection to Abraham doesn't save your soul. Okay? And he drives it even further with Jacob and Esau. Not only that, but Rebecca's children had one and the same father, our father Isaac, yet before the twins were born or had done anything good or bad, in order that God's purpose and election might stand, not by works, but by him who calls, she was told the older will serve the younger. Just as it is written, Jacob I love, but Esau I hated. Let's read what Calvin writes. Suppose we admit that Jacob was chosen because he had worth arising out of virtues to come. Well, why then should Paul say that he had not yet been born? What's Paul's point? In other words, if Jacob was chosen because of some virtues within him, then what is Paul, why is Paul arguing before the twins were born or had done anything good or bad? What's Paul's point? Paul's off message here. Like some of his handlers need to come and say, Paul, wrong argument, bad, bad move here. You shouldn't have talked about twins being born before they were born and all that. Clearly then what Calvin's saying is it had nothing to do with anything Jacob did. All right? Nothing is hidden from God. <clears throat> Sorry. Now it would be, it would have been rash to add that he still had done no good, for this answer will be ready. Nothing is hidden from God, and so Jacob's godliness was present before him. If works obtain grace, God's reward for them ought rightly to have been uh, already established before Jacob's birth, just as if he had grown up. But the apostle proceeds to resolve this difficulty and teaches that the adoption of Jacob comes not from works, but from God's call. By the way, Calvin gets this a little bit wrong here. I'll talk about that in a minute, but <clears throat> who am I to critique Calvin? But I'm going to go ahead and do it. Bold, but we'll get to it. <clears throat> this is as if he had said, it is what God pleased that it is uh, that is to be considered, not what men brought of themselves. Finally, from the words election and purpose, it is certain that all causes that men commonly devise apart from God's secret plan are remote from this cause. Everything comes from within God. Now, what did he get wrong? Well, if you said... Um, it doesn't come from works, but from God's call. That's actually not literally what it says. Look, why, look at verse 12. Somebody read verse 12. Not by works, but by him who calls. What's the difference between that and it's, it comes down to God's call? Well, because the focus then is on the call. But Paul doesn't focus on the call. What does Paul focus on? Him. Who's the him? God. 
You know what Paul's given us here? He's given us God. And God is the one who calls. That's the difference. You want to know the difference between Jacob and Esau? You boil it all down to one word, him. That's the difference. And it isn't Jacob and it isn't Esau. The difference between Jacob and Esau is God. And God calls. And when God calls, you come. That's how it works. So, I mean, the idea that this all derives from God and it's a covenant within God is coming from Romans 9 and other places, not from Calvin. It's coming directly from the text. And you're like, well, you have to really be careful with the text here, don't you? You have to read it carefully. Yes, you do. Read it carefully. Not by works, but by him who calls, she was told. Now, what is the importance of the phrase not by works? What's not by works? Salvation, okay. The election itself, you know. Um, Yet, before the twins were born or had done anything good or bad, in order that God's purpose in election might stand. So that's what it is. God's purpose in election isn't based on human works. He's not looking to us to do stuff so his purpose in election might stand. It doesn't stand on us. What does it stand on? Him. Okay, what do you get out of this? Three things. God gets glory through the salvation. We get humbled and we get security. Those are the three treasures here, guys. And that it all comes from this word him. It's all God. It's a God-centered salvation. That's what we're getting here. Okay. So, therefore, the case of Jacob and Esau refutes the argument from works. As we just saw, I'm not going to read it again. What will those who assign some place to intellection to works, either past or future, use for a pretext to obscure these things? What are they going to put up to put up a curtain? Look at the words. Look at what are you going to do with Romans 9, 11 through 13? You know what you're going to do? You're not going to read it or preach any sermons on it. You're not ever going to refer to it. You're going to pretend it doesn't exist and keep preaching a man-centered salvation. That's what you're going to do. Because when you look carefully at the words, the the man-centered salvation just disappears like a mist. Instead, it's a focus on God and what he is doing. Absolutely. All right. For this is directly to evade the apostles' contention that the distinction between the brothers depends not upon any basis of works, but upon the mere calling of God, because it was established between them before they were born. God could foresee nothing good in man except what he had already determined to bestow by the benefit of his election. He does not resort to that absurd disorder of putting good works before their cause. For we have it uh, from the words of the apostle that the salvation of believers has been founded upon the decision of divine election alone. And this favor is not earned by works, but comes from free calling. So we would not say that a decision had nothing to do with our salvation. Not at all. A decision had everything to do with the salvation. It just wasn't your decision. It was God's decision concerning you. He decided what to do. And then your decision was built on his. Did you make a decision? You absolutely did. I've already said that. You exerted your will. You chose to follow Jesus. You did decide. I have decided to follow Jesus. You did decide. But God decided first. And his decision in reference to you enables your decision in reference to him. That's all. That's what Calvin's saying because that's what the text is saying. Jacob's election is not to earthly blessings. Here he's talking about something else. All right? All right, you look at Jacob's case and you're like, I'm not even sure I see heaven in any of this. I mean, seriously, you read the story about Isaac, blind Isaac and Jacob and all this, and it's a very earthbound story. It's a story of hot soup and of a guy who likes to hunt and someone else is a quiet man around the tents, right? And, uh, you know, a mom who likes her one son and the dad likes the other. And one of them was born first and there were some promises made to her while the twins were jostling in the womb and all that. But all seemed very earthbound to me. 
And Calvin is saying, you know, it's not earthbound. In effect, he's defending Paul from the uh, accusation that Paul is taking Jacob and Esau out of context and making too much of the story. In effect, this would be a Jewish argument saying, I'm not even seeing heaven or hell or any of that stuff in the Jacob Esau story. I'm not seeing it there. What's what Calvin is dealing with? In effect, he's defending Paul's quotation of Malachi and his use of Jacob and Esau in proving individual election and salvation. That's what he's dealing with here. So he's entertaining whether or not the Apostle Paul twisted Scripture to suit his purpose. The blessing of Jacob seems to have been for mere earthly purposes. The blessings of the firstborn. This is what it says. Do these words sound familiar? This is Isaac's blessing of his son Jacob, thinking it was his son Esau. You remember that whole thing? That's just one of the slimiest moments in redemptive history. I mean, the blind, dying father, and you're going to deceive him. And the wife is involved, the mom, and she's there. It's like, I know what you can do to trick your father. You know, the whole thing just seems about as anti-faith as it gets, doesn't it? I mean, that's just slimy. You know, and I think it was anti-faith. Now, you could ask, how does he get the blessing without tricking his father? Because his father definitely wanted to give it to Esau. All I I can say is we'll never know, because the faith way was never tried. Instead, they definitely went with the with the deceitful way. But this is the blessing that he got. And you're like, well, where's heaven in all this? May God give you of heaven's due. Well, there's heaven. But it just seems due is an earthly thing and of earth's richness, an abundance of grain and new wine. May nations serve you and peoples bow down to you. Be Lord over your brothers and may the sons of your mother bow down to you. May those who curse you be cursed and may those who bless you be blessed. But Calvin says that the Apostle Paul is looking deeper. He looks deeper. Paul saw what they cannot bear to consider that God willed by an earthly symbol to declare God's, sorry, Jacob's spiritual election, which otherwise lay hid in his inaccessible judgment seat. For unless we refer the right of primogeniture granted uh, him to the age to come, it would be an empty and absurd kind of blessing, since from it he obtained nothing but manifold hardships, trouble, sad exile, many sorrows and bitter cares. What did he get for it? Nothing but trouble, Right? running for his life because Esau wanted to kill him. Therefore, when Paul saw without doubt that by outward blessing, God testified to the blessing, spiritual and unfading, that he had prepared in his kingdom for his servant, he did not hesitate to seek in the outward blessing evidence to prove the spiritual blessing. You know what he's doing here? He's really uh, doing a Hebrews 11 argument. Let me ask you a question. Are Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob important in redemptive history in the New Testament? Are they important people? Clearly they are. Are the blessings and promises around them important things? Clearly they are. They're mentioned in Hebrews 11 as heroes of the faith who lived by faith and who traveled in tents in the promised land and never received any of the promises but saw ahead, looking ahead to the promise, uh, a city with foundations whose builder and maker is God and so therefore God is not ashamed to be called their God. Is the author of Hebrews 11 making too much of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob? Not at all. He sees what's really going on. The real question is, did Moses make too much about the stories of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob and writing a whole book about them? Because that's basically what Genesis is about. I mean, from Genesis 12 on, it's Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob and his sons. That's what you get. Is it too much made? No. That's God's tree of salvation, the olive tree that Paul's going to mention in Romans 11. It's the patriarchs and the promises made to them and that we are grafted into those promises. So, did Paul misuse Scripture? Did he twist Scripture? No. The case of Jacob and Esau is a spiritual one, not a physical one. That's what he's getting at. All right? All right, let's finish up this section. We'll be done. Romans 9, uh, 15 and 16 then, makes it so plain that God is not scouring the individual to find something of worth in us on the basis of which he will bless us. Somebody read these verses if you would. Page 7. 
what then shall we say is God unjust? Not at all. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. It does not, therefore, depend on man's desire or effort, but on God's mercy. Calvin writes, and what does this mean, I ask? All right, well, I think what he's asking there is verse 16, okay? What does not, therefore, depend on man's desire or effort, but on God's mercy? What? Election and salvation, right? Salvation from sin does not depend on man's effort or desire or anything in man at all. It depends on God's mercy. That's what, that's what verse 16 is saying. So Calvin writes this. What does this mean, I ask? Well, it's simply the Lord's clear declaration that he finds in men themselves no reason to bless them. <laughs> he does not find anything in you to bless. The blessing comes from inside him out towards you. That's what it is. Uh, it's his own work. Therefore, salvation of his own is his own work. Inasmuch as God establishes your salvation in himself alone, why do you descend to yourself? Since he appoints for you his mercy alone, why do you have recourse to your own merits? Seeing that he confines your thought within his mercy alone, why do you turn your attention in part to your own works? Stop looking to yourself. That's what he's saying. By the way, I think it's important to notice what Paul does in verse 14 and 15. This question comes up, is God unjust? Does this ever come up in a discussion of this? Does this ever pop up in your mind? <laughs> really? That's tragic. I'm sorry. Sorry to hear that. Talking about uh, Elizabeth Edwards, uh, basically that uh, she, you know, her 16-year-old son was killed in a car wreck, and she's not going to worship a god who would do that. Something like that. Yeah, yeah, that's very, very sad. Well, I'm very, you know, I'm very sorry to hear that. That's obviously a, a tragic thing. But you don't have to. If you start ruminating on these doctrines, meditating on them, going carefully through Romans 9 and start to talk about them to unconvinced people, it won't take long before somebody's going to say back to you, not knowing that they're actually quoting Romans 9 themselves, that's not fair. That's just unjust. Okay? How does Paul answer the question of justice? What is his answer in verse 15? Is God unjust is the question. That's what's in front of us. Is God unjust by this predestination thing? Is he unjust? What is God's answer? All right, yes, the answer is no, not at all. May it never be. Cannot. It's inconceivable that God is unjust, okay? For he says to, uh, to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy. So it's interesting because he changes the subject. The subject was what? What was the topic? Justice. And he says, I'm discussing a different topic with you. I'm discussing mercy. You know why? Because in and of itself, justice will not save you. If you want justice without mercy, okay, 
what do you get? You get hell, clearly. Justice without mercy gets you hell. Justice with mercy is the gospel. What is mercy, by the way? Yeah. I mean, you picture, I always picture somebody murdering the king's 20 year old son. Cold blooded murder. Caught, clearly did it, dragged before the king, standing up with arrogance, blood on his hands, demanding a pardon and to be set free to go home to his family. Demanding it. It's not the appropriate verb linked with mercy. One never demands mercy. What would, what would be a better verb for mercy? Beg, generally, we <laughs> beg for mercy. And, and when we use that word beg rather than demand, what are we saying about mercy? It's, it's unmerited and might not be given. And the person who doesn't give it is under no obligation and there's no fault in not giving it. That's what the text is saying here. God's not at fault for not showing mercy all the time. He doesn't have to show mercy and he's going to show mercy as he chooses. What's interesting in the context, Moses asked to see God's glory. It's very interesting to me. Now show me your glory. That's the request. That's basically, if you take it to its end to the degree, God, I want to go to heaven because that's where your glory is. I want to see a place where your glory shines and radiates. I want to see that place. I want to be there. I want to see your glory. Where did that desire come from in Moses' heart? I think God gave it to him. That's, that's the language of Zion. That's what happens in your heart. It's like, I want to go there. I want to see that place. I want to, be, I want to, I want to see your glory, God. And you know what he says? He says, you'll only see my glory. How? If I show you mercy. If I show you mercy, then you can see my glory. If I don't show you mercy, you won't see my glory. So to see my glory is an act of mercy, and I'm going to have mercy on you, Moses. Mercy? Mercy for what? Well, you're a sinner. You violated my laws. You're a murderer. Disobedient. That's Moses' case. What's yours? Well, we all violate God's laws. Only by mercy will we go to heaven. It's not, therefore, a matter of justice. It never has been. The fact is, then, God is free in this matter, completely free. It's not a matter of justice. It's a matter of mercy. That's what he's getting at. All right, well, we're out of time. What he does, uh, you know, in the next section is he says, oh, by the way, Jesus taught this stuff too. <laughs> John 6 may be the most kind of Calvinistic or Reformed chapter in the Bible, frankly. In John 6, Jesus, in effect, says, no one can come to me unless the Father draws him. And everyone the Father draws, they all come. 100%. All right? That's, you know... It's like, why? I never knew that Jesus was a Calvinist. That's amazing. It's like, I love it. That's the nth degree of the ridiculous statements that could be made. Um, Jesus was no Calvinist. Cal, uh, Calvin. Huh? I did, and I'll lose none. I, yeah, I'll lose none. I will never drive them away. Um, you know, all of these things. John 6 is amazing. And I heard a great sermon. I'll finish with this. John Murray once cast all of the statements Jesus makes in John 6 in, into this formulaic kind of repetitive thing. It's like a five-part sermon and says, it is a moral and spiritual impossibility for, and then fill in the blank. It is a moral and spiritual impossibility for any that the Father does not draw to come to Christ. They'll never come. Secondly, it's a moral and spiritual impossibility for any that the Father draws to fail to come. They're all going to come. Thirdly, it's a moral and spiritual impossibility for any that the Father brings to Jesus for Jesus to refuse any of them. He's going to take them all. Not half of them. It's like, I'll take him, but not Saul. Boy, he ticks me off. I mean, he's been beaten up on my people. I don't want Saul. No, no, any the Father brings, Jesus will receive him. And once Jesus receives, it's a moral and spiritual impossibility that he'll lose any of them, but he's going to raise all of them up at the last day. It's a beautiful statement, and it all comes right from John 6. So, in effect, Calvin's saying Jesus taught this too. That's what we're getting. Let's close in prayer. Father, thank you for the things we've learned tonight. 
Thank you for our brother John Calvin that was willing to see them clearly and teach on them clearly. I thank you for what he taught us, and that's basically find it in the text or don't find it at all. And Lord, I thank you that it is in the text, though it does stretch my mind to the breaking point. I don't fully understand all these things, Lord. I pray that you would guard me from error as I teach and all of us from error in what we believe. Help us to be faithful. Thank you for your mercy in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this resource from twojourneys.org. Feel free to use and share this content to spread the knowledge of God and build His kingdom. Only we ask that you do so for non-commercial purposes and in accordance with the copyright policy found at twojourneys.org. Two Journeys exists to help Christians make progress in the two journeys of the Christian life, the internal journey of sanctification and the external journey of gospel advancement. We do this by exporting biblical teaching for the good of Christ's church and for the glory of God.